We've been talking about, as I said, the doctrines of grace. Keep in mind that as I stand before you, I stand before you as uh, a man who embraces Reformed theology. I'm not someone who would eschew the, the, the category of being a Calvinist. I don't think John Calvin would, would want men and women calling themselves Calvinists. But for the sake of clarity, that's a title I don't reject. Uh, but we need to understand, as, as I mentioned, uh, the pastor and theologian John Piper uh, from Minnesota, uh, John Piper uh, said this, I don't want us to begin as a Calvinist and defend a system. What I want us to do is to begin as Bible-believing Christians who want to put the Bible above all systems of thought. That we want to read the Bible for what it says, not for what we want to find in it. And we don't want to sit there and, and pick and, and piecemeal uh, verses out of context to prove whatever it is that we want to call our position or our view. We want to understand God's truth as He presents and interprets. As we look at this idea, these five doctrines of grace, these five points, we need to see that as we look at them, and it's not an entirety of Reformed theology, but it's, it's very important issues uh, that became a focal point of great conflict uh, between two systems of thought. One saying it was indeed that man accomplishes his own salvation, and another school of thought says no, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we find in these five points we see our sin, we see that we are sinners standing in extreme need of God's grace. That we experience the complete grace of God and that brings us to faith. And so then we trust in the sufficient and the complete work of Christ. And Christ, He didn't make salvation possible, but He made it real. This is what, this is what we believe and what Scripture speaks of. Christ made salvation actual and not a hypothetical possibility laid in front of people if they're just smart enough to choose. We also see that the Holy Spirit is the one that acts to affect our salvation. Not simply encouraging it, but changing hearts of stone to hearts of flesh to believe. And that we also know that by God's strength and not our own, we will persevere. Those who are saved will persevere to the end. These, these points, we, we, we use the flower tulip, a beautiful flower, and I would say an even more beautiful spiritual truth. We use the flower tulip to help us to remember. The scripture teaches about our total depravity. We looked at that last time. Not total inability. Not that we're all as bad as we possibly could be. It's just that we can do nothing good. It's all tinged and touched with sin. Corrupted because of the fall. We cannot save ourselves. Romans 3 tells us there's none who is righteous. No, not one. This speaks about the fact that, that we need a Savior. For we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. This morning we're going to be looking at unconditional election. Or we might speak about that as unearned love or undeserved grace, unconditional mercy that God has given to us. I call it the best gift ever. For it's, it's something that we can't purchase. It's not something that we can earn. It's something freely given. We will look in coming weeks about a limited or a particular atonement. That is that the sacrifice of Christ's life was sufficient to save all people. But it was made effective for God's people. That it was the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many, for a particular people, for God's children. We'll speak about a little bit in a week to come about irresistible grace, and that is that our sinful resistance to God, that, that we struggle, that we kick against the goads as, as God accused Paul of rightly, kicking against the goads, that is reacting and rejecting God, that our rejection of God is so wonderfully overcome by His grace. 
And we'll also look at the perseverance of the saints. That is, that those who have been saved, all who were saved, will win the fight of faith. Philippians 1.6 tells us that, doesn't it, so wonderfully? For I'm convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. What God has started, he will finish. Amen? Well, let's talk about this idea, unconditional election. Tough nut. It's it's, it's a difficult issue to to grapple with. Why? Because we want to, like children, say, I did it myself. We, like little children, I can remember Thomas, and he's not here, so I can quote him. But like Thomas, when he was a little boy, that was one of his favorite, favorite phrases. He goes, oh, no, I'll do it myself. I do it myself. Now he said, Daddy, would you do this for me? But we, we, want to, we want to claim credit. We, we want to, to make sure that we assert our own authority. We assert our own ability. We look at this idea uh, as extraordinarily difficult. I want us to look at a couple of verses in Romans chapter 9. Now let me tell you, years ago as I was preaching a series through the book of Romans, and I got to Romans chapter 9, and I used that series uh, for several weeks looking at this particular doctrine, and the title of that short little series was called, Can't We Just Skip and go on to chapter 10. Because it it is tough. And the Apostle Paul, even if you go back and read Romans 9, all the questions that might come to our mind, the Apostle Paul asks. He says, this doesn't sound fair. Is there injustice with God? Is God not being fair? And he says, what? Certainly not. Certainly not. I love that. He says, absolutely not. Paul stomps his foot and says, no, there is no injustice with God. And even goes so far to say, that we are like the clay in the potter's hands. How can the, the clay complain when, when the hands fashion it according to his purposes? But I want us to look at this second point, And I want us to see basically five wonderful points about this second point. I want us to think about uh, how really glorious is this idea that we have been loved based on nothing we have done. There was a pastor by the name of George Matheson. George Matheson was uh, a a very gifted student, and at an early age, he went off to university to do theological studies. In his late teens, uh, he started going blind. Uh, He was a seminary student going blind, and let me tell you, studying Greek and Hebrew, theology, history, Bible, all of that sort of thing, being able to see is difficult enough, but imagine... Uh, if you have to learn how to, to read Braille and other things, as well as have what he had, his sisters, uh, reading uh, the text to him as his eyesight was failing in order to make it through seminary. He became completely blind. And as a young man, not yet 20 years old, completing his seminary studies, his fiancée came to him and she said, I just can't marry you. She said... I just can't see myself being married to a blind preacher my whole life. She left him. His sisters, his sisters stayed on and supported him. They took care of him. And and he was richly loved. Never married. uh, Came to be a, a, a strong pastor, pastoring a church of thousands. He used the event of the marriage of one of his sisters, a joyful event, but as he, he watched joy in the life of a experienced joy, he couldn't watch it, his eyes were useless at this point. As he experienced the joy of his sister's marriage, there was great grief and pain on his heart. 
For he had loved a, a woman who, who walked away from him, who found him to be unlovable. He wrote these words. He said, I was alone in the manse. That's what we call Presbyterian parsonages. We know what a manse is. It's a, the pastor's house that was provided. I was alone in the manse. It was the night of my sister's marriage, and something happened to me, which is known only to me. And it caused me the most severe mental suffering. And so I wrote a hymn, a hymn that was a fruit of suffering. It was the quickest bit of work that I'd ever done in my life. The whole of this hymn was written in five minutes. This was a man who who struggled. He struggled with enjoying the joy of the love of his sister with her new husband because he had been forsaken by one that he had loved earlier. And he wrote, he wrote this hymn. It's a hymn that we've sung several times. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life that I owe that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. A love that will not let me go. He goes on in a, in a later verse. He says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and I feel that promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. George Matheson, as a pastor, was struggling with this idea and found great joy in a love that God had loved him with, a love that would not let him go, a love that Romans 8 says there's nothing that can separate us from that love. Now, that's what we're talking about here this morning as we talk about the idea of unconditional, undeserved, unearned love, affection, and indeed a calling to be the children of God. That's what we're talking about. In moments of pain, when we're crying, when we're weeping in loneliness and despair, is there a greater need that we would have? A greater need than a love that won't let us go? A love that's not dependent on my fickle feelings? A love that does not rely on my erratic behavior? That someone somewhere would know me? Someone who would know my secrets? Know my sins? Know my weaknesses and my ugliness? And love me anyway. That's what we're talking about. The Westminster Confession of Faith words it this way. Talks about the idea of being called by God unconditionally, unearned, undeserved. It says, God before the foundation of the world was laid. Prior to all that is, was. God before the foundation of the world was laid according to His eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will has chosen those predestined to eternal life to everlasting glory in Christ. He chose them out of His free grace and love alone. Not because He foresaw faith or because He foresaw good works or that they simply endured in either of these or anything else seen in the creature. He didn't see those to be conditions or causes moving Him to do this. That it was God alone and all to the praise of His glorious grace. We find in Romans chapter 9, two verses. These are two verses uh, that are in the midst of a, of a story that we're going to look at as Paul really tells two stories about uh, two events in the life of the patriarchs. But we find these two verses. As God said to Moses, this is God's word, 
Romans 9, 15, and 16. As God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so that it depends not on human will or on human exertion, but on God who has that mercy. This is God's word. Simple statements, but words that will not fail. Words that endure even while the grass withers and the flower fades. Now, a statement like that, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I'll have compassion, it seems to be a little circular thing that God spins out there. And we look at that and say, well, God, you're just saying you're doing it because you're doing it. The wonderful thing is it's true. Why does God love us? Because He loves us. It's, It's a terrific thing. You see, there is no hope, there's no assurance, there's no confidence in the idea, why does God love me? Because He saw something in me. Because he saw some reason to love me. Well, if God's love for me is dependent on something I've said, done, or am, then should I stop saying, doing, or being that? Does that mean that God would stop loving me? No, it has to be built on something that will not change, that will not fail. That has to be based on God himself. So he says, I will have mercy because I will have mercy. And I will have compassion because I will have compassion. I am merciful. I am compassionate. It doesn't depend on your will. It doesn't depend on your effort. It depends on God. So let's think about these these five things. These five things that we see in this, we'll step through these, but I encourage you uh, to meditate upon this this week. This idea of using words like election, predestination. These words, people hear them and immediately say, well, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't like that at all. Walked into a coffee shop one day and had an insurance agent, a good friend of mine, said, Now wait, Pastor, i got a question for you. You Presbyterians are really big on this predestination thing, aren't you? I said, Let me have a cup of coffee first. (laughs) I said, You need to understand that God's pretty big on this predestination thing. But let's talk about it in this term. Would Would you argue with me at all if I said that God has loved you with an unconditional love? Or do you say that God has based His love on you on something? You see, all of a sudden that becomes a different argument. It becomes a different argument in people's minds because they want to be unconditionally loved. They're just not really sure about this whole chosen thing. But we see that part and parcel of that, that's all put together, that God chooses us in love, predestines us in love. God calls us in love We can't separate the two. Let's look at a couple of things that come from this. Uh, Again, a little closer definition to, a little shorter definition of this whole idea of unconditional love. Unconditional election is this. It's God's free choice before creation, not based on foreseen faith, uh, to which traitors are given faith and repentance. They are pardoned and they are adopted into the everlasting family of God. What a wonderful thing this is. Let's, let's look at some, some issues that arise naturally from this. First off, we need to see that it is a promise of great assurance. That this whole idea of unconditional love, unconditional election, unearned grace is a promise of great assurance. It has nothing uh, that we had to become. There's nothing that we had to become in order to get God to love us. Therefore, He won't stop loving us if we fail or falter. God will not stop loving us. Romans 8, 
uh, speaks to this. Romans 8, as I was telling the students this morning in Sunday school, Martin Luther said of all 66 in the canon, uh, the 66 books of the Bible, if I could only have one the rest of my life, it would be Romans. And if I could only have one chapter of that book, it would be Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, which begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it ends up with, and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And we find in the midst of that, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who then shall bring a charge against God's what? Elect. Absolutely. And we don't footstomp that and say, See, there's the word. No, it's a promise of grace and assurance of glory that says if God has called you, if God has chosen you, He's not going to unchoose you because God's not fickle. There is no shadow of changing or turning in Him. And I am so thankful that God's grip on me is not dependent on my grip on Him. Because I, I struggle. I'm weak. I don't have to feel like a Christian when I wake up in the morning to continue being a Christian. Because God's love has been placed on me in an unfeeling way. Because to tell you the truth, I, I don't always feel like a pastor. I don't always feel like a Christian. And I don't always act like it. And I'm thankful that there's not a moment that God's going to look and say, whoa, 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 I didn't know that you are capable of that. I'm glad that I wrote the Lamb's Book of Life in pencil. <laughs> we laugh at that, but that's, that's not true. That's not reality. It is a promise of great assurance that we might. We think about it next week as we come to the table. One of the things we do as we fence the table is to say, even if we woke up this morning with a weak faith, with a faith that was beaten and bruised and worn down, that we come to the table. Why? Because we get stronger as we feed. We get stronger as we dine. We get stronger as we come and are spiritually fed by God. And our salvation doesn't depend on our last thought, our last action, or our last feeling. Secondly, secondly, as we consider the second point, the five things about point number two, is it reminds us not to think too highly of ourselves. It's this idea that it's not of me, it's not the one who runs or the one who wills, but it's of God. We, we think about this, as I mentioned earlier, one of Thomas's favorite phrases as a little child was, I'll do it myself. And, and you know what? We, um, we never really, really rid ourselves of that pride throughout our lives as we want to claim credit and, and get credit for things, saying, I, I did it myself. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, particularly 8 and 9, says, It's by grace you have been saved by faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest... Any man should boast, right? We are God's workmanship. What a wonderful thing it is. Now you look at that and you go back and you analyze that text and many people have done all sorts of theological and and exegetical gymnastics to get through that verse. It is by grace you have been saved by faith and that not of yourselves. That, what does that mean? That's that's indicative that there's, there's some word over here that's the antecedent to what's going on over here. What is the that 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 is talking about? It is by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It, what? Is the gift of God. All right, so now we look at that. Is it grace? Is it by grace you've been saved? Is that the gift of God? Is that not a result of works? Has it been grace you've been saved? Is salvation itself? Is by grace you've been saved by faith? We start struggling with that. Now, one thing that we deal with as we look at the Greek, 
is, is the Greek has some things that our good old English language just doesn't have. And we find it in other languages as well. But you start beginning with all your genders, right? Masculine, feminine, neuter, that kind of thing. And you start, start pairing things up and seeing what are we referring to here. A remarkable thing about that is you look at this idea, it's by grace, you've been saved, by faith, uh, salvation, all those sorts of things. You start looking at those and, and that's kind of some mixed gender. There's male, there's female, uh, both given in that. Masculine, feminine, uh, and by grace, and salvation, and faith. And we start looking at the, the word tauto, which means that, uh, pronoun referring back to what's going on. Actually, we're going to find that in the subsequent words uh, to be neuter, to be given with no particular gender. And, 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 and looking back on that, it's speaking about the idea that we're, we're encompassing all of it. It is by grace you have been saved by faith. We're talking about a concept as a whole. What is it? It's a gift. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So we, we consider this as a reminder. We can't brag about our salvation. We can't look with derision at the folks around us and saying, Thank you, Lord, for me not being like all those nasty folks out there. We, we don't look around with derision at those who have made bad life choices. Yes, we can say those were bad life choices, but praise God. Praise God that, that by His grace, my life choices have not brought me uh, to a similar place there, but for the grace of God go I. And it helps us to look with compassion at those who struggle, about those who are misled. It helps us to understand that I don't have anything about which I can boast. And we sing with, with great fervor the hymn of Augustus Top Lady. Rock of Ages, the third verse, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Who am I? Naked, I come to thee for dress. Who am I? I'm helpless, and I look to thee for grace. What am I? I'm foul, but I to thy fountain fly. And in Christ Jesus I'm washed, or I die. You see... We ought not think more highly of ourselves. Romans 4 speaks about the difference in a gift and wages. What we've earned is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 tells us. But what is the gift of God? It's eternal life. What I'm owed? Condemnation. I can boast in that. What do I get? The gift of God. Third thing, it's a promise of great assurance... It's a reminder not to think too highly of ourselves. Third thing is, it becomes a pattern of selfless, godly love that we should be manifesting. A pattern of selfless, godly love that we would love with a love that has not been earned. A love that has not been justified. If you go back to 1990, I'm going to show my age. Young folks, don't despise me for pulling an old quote because I'm going to pull an older one in a minute. But it was Madonna who came prancing across the stage and singing in her video that you've got to justify my love. Wanting, needing, waiting for you to justify my love. Hoping, praying for you to justify my love. The older reference, 1964. I didn't, I didn't hear this one when it debuted, but I've heard it subsequent to that. The Temptations. The temptation said... To get stones from a rock, you got to break it. To get bread from dough, you got to bake it. 
to get water from a faucet, you got to turn it. And if you want my love, if you want my love, you got to earn it. Now, you may not whistle those two tunes as you go walking out of here. Please don't whistle those tunes, even if you know them as you go out of here today. But you know what? We, too, regularly practice what they're preaching. We expect others to make themselves worthy of our love before we give it and then to continually justify it. But what of Christ's command? John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, you think that's nothing new. Well, it is. For he says, just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Well, hasn't this always been the command of God that we would love God and love our neighbors as ourselves? Yes, but here's the newness. It becomes a visible pattern of Christ. Before us, placarded in Jesus Christ, we see the pattern of God's love through our Savior. The newness of this commandment is the love that we are to have is modeled before our eyes. We see Christ, the one whose heart went out in compassion to the men and women who didn't understand. We see Christ who prayed for the men and women who beat Him, who reviled Him, who mocked Him, and who watched Him die. To find this clearly spoken, we turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see... This idea of unearned love, unconditional election, becomes a model for us to love. We don't wait for people to become worthy of our love. We love because we have been loved by Christ. Amen? Fourth point. Fourth point. Coming in for a landing. Bear with me. Give me some unconditional love here just for a minute. This is something, it, it undergirds the whole thing. We, we find some, some points here. We find that God's promise is, is greatly assuring to us, uh, that encourages us not to think too highly of ourselves. It's a pattern of, of selfless, godly love. This might be the, the final point, but I've got one I want to save for the final point. But this is something we need to understand, something we need to see, an important point about this. Guys, it's true. It's true that God has loved us First not based on anything he foresaw, not based on any idea he might have of what we might do, not because of any value he saw in us, but he loved us because he loved us. Ephesians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now I would insert a Rex Snyder joke here. But nobody in this room was alive and doing things before the foundation of the world. Right? But that's when we were loved. That's when we were elected. That's when we were called. He says, before the foundation of the world, that what? That we should be holy, that we should be blameless before Him love. He predestined us for adoption in Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? goes on to say, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us and His beloved. And it's in Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purposes, which He set forth in Christ. How many times have we found in this situation, in this particular verse, a time where He says, oh, and by the way, you've got a part in this. He's saying, no, according to the counsel of His will, 
according to his plans, according to his purpose, by his grace, through the riches of his glory. This is the biblical truth that we find. Now remember, when we read scripture, we read it for what it says, not for what we want it to say. And we really do want it to say, you know what, you know why God loved me? Because I'm kind of special. <laughs> no comments. We... We want him to say, God, God loves us because I did the right thing. I made the right decision. I was smart enough. I was good enough. And dadgummit, I'm, I'm in the right place. No. No, what Scripture says is this is all based on God, His plan, His love, His riches. Romans chapter 9, again, this, this chapter that, that really unfolds all of this, verse 11, says why this all takes place. It says, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. That's the reason for all of this. Is, it's because God would show the glory of His goodness, of His grace, of His mercy. This is true, people. Scripture speaks it from cover to cover. God has called His people. Last thing, last thing. And I, I swapped these last two. I thought it's true as a good foot stomp, but, but let me send you forth with something. Let me send you out with something. Let me send you with something I pray would make an impact on your ministry as Christians today. And that is that this doctrine gives us great hope to take to the hopeless. It gives us a hope to a hopeless world. I, I received a letter years ago from a man who basically told me as he saw the salvation of his daughter that he truly believed that it was too late for him. He had done too much. He had been too bad. There was too much bad on his record that there's no way that he could ever undo it. And, and I had to say in a pastoral way, that's true. But it's not too late. You cannot undo this. What you can do is trust in the finished work of Christ to pay the debt that you cannot. What do we say to the worst sinner that we encounter, even when we encounter that sinner in the mirror? What do we say? What hope is there for the murderer, the despot, and the adulterer? What hope do we have for the world? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. Who said that? Paul, the same man who said that it is of God. His eternal plan, His election, His calling. We proclaim this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is truth. And, and what do we know of that? It's a trustworthy statement. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, and it's deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. The gospel means that God's unconditional love, it gives hope to the hopeless. And, and we sing with Fanny Crosby, uh, that glorious hymn. She says, O perfect redemption, the promise of God to every believer, the purchase of blood, the vilest offender, the vilest offender, what a word, vile, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. Praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. My friends, Let's not get bogged down in the idea of this Calvinistic tenet of the Reformation of unconditional election in an academic and stoic way. Let it be a wondrous biblical truth that transforms your life to say, I was loved because God, for His own reason, decided to. 
And that I have a hope to take to the hopeless. That they might know a love that will not let them go. Amen? Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord God, for, for Father, stepping sloppily through your word. May we rejoice in, in the truth that we find therein and may we proclaim it in a joyful way. I pray, Lord God, that our knowledge of you who have mercy on who you will have mercy. Our trust in you who will have compassion on whom you will have compassion, Father, would be life-changing in this day and that we would go forth, Lord, humble, assured, loving, Father, full of hope. May this be the message that we take to a watching world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died us and this is your love. In Jesus' name, amen.